Easy there, there, Herbert, there. Not so on her. Mondo Trasho. At last, a gutter film dedicated to all that's trashy in life. Now that's something I'd like to see. Rattlesnakes have been known to kill themselves by accidentally striking their own bodies with venomous fangs. There's a lesson in that for mankind. <laughs> there is, by George. I say this, if, if Mike Douglas can become profound, so can Shepard. Bring it up there. Tonight's program is dedicated to another cultural hero of our day. Whatever happened to Monty Rock? Monty Rock the third? You should have known the first two. Oh, oh my God. Look at that. For those of you that are particularly uh, patriotic, we'll send you those lyrics for that. If you're over 21... And our qualified local 802 musician will have to send me your union card number and I'll send you the lyrics to Hey, we have some more uh, names of rock groups. How about this one? Monticello and the Strings of the Jefferson Rotunda. <laughs> well, that's bad news. I kind of like Fred Nassa and the Bases of Tranquility. That's not bad, you know. How about this one? The cables of the Verrazano Narrows. I see, they're getting more poetic. This one's kind of nice. Kitty Hawk. And the brothers who? <laughs> she. How about the Hoovers of Dam? I mean, you know, we've got to bring American. Uh, uh, how about the Isthmus of Pandemonium? Not so good. No, not good. Now, I kind of like uh, Monty Rush. And his countenance of four. <laughs> you know, I, I told Dave, you know, this uh, this jug band that I played with at Princeton, which incidentally got some very interesting reviews and several pieces that have been written on the show. I told Dave that he's not going to go anywhere unless he has a name. You know, you can't, you can't, and a real name doesn't work. Believe me, you don't think the the Beatles would ever have made it if the if the offer would have been called John, Fred, Paul, and George. Would have sounded like a pinochle game, you know. Oh, no, the Beatles made it largely, really, in some ways, because of the name. Right away, people talked about that name. I remember the first days. You remember if they're talking about the name Beatles? The whole idea of the Beatles? And by the way, there are 70 towns in the U.S. named Summit. Only 11 of them got post offices. These are things that I've been picking up out of the paper lately. See, I collect uh, little bits of information that are at the bottom of uh, pages all the time because this, this is the way real education... Do you know that there is... One town, one of the very few American cities that has never had a car in it. This was at the bottom of a little regular story in the Times the other day. Just as there's one town in America that has never had a car in it. It's Acoma, New Mexico, which is built on the top of a high, rocky butte. I guess you got to swing by the vines to get up there. 
Can you imagine these guys on a Saturday night having a hell of a time in a coma, New Mexico? And they're watching TV commercials and stuff, and they see all these wide-track Pontiacs and all that stuff. Here's a little thing that I ran across, too. Uh, we're, we're uh, you know, I'm a little nervous at this time of the year because a big disaster happened to me once in my life at this time of the year, and I don't like to remember it. Uh, I've always wondered whoever put the hole in the donut a question the lady asked one of the editors. You know those question things in the newspapers? Captain Hanson Gregory. A one man put the hole in the donut. There's, there's like the other day we did a show about unsung people who have affected millions and nobody knows about them. I, I, I still maintain that a guy that did something like that affected all of us. He put the hole in the donut. And you know how he did it? He was the he was a main skipper. He was a captain on a boat, see? Morning, Bob. And he poked the soggy center out of his mother's fried cake in 1847. His mother was astounded. He cooked it up. They ate it. And everyone says, by God, you've invented the donut, Captain Hanson Gregory. And ever since that time... Uh, he, you know, it's big. It's a, that's a hundred and some odd. You know that we eat three billion donuts a year and that a plaque was placed at the captain's gravesite on the donut's 100th anniversary in 1947. <laughs> I'd like to go see this plaque. I'll go visit the guy that invented the donut. And uh, he's a... Uh, you know that the that one man that was almost knighted, in fact, they're still trying to knight him posthumously, was the guy that invented the flush toilet. Yeah, he was English. And I know I can't tell you what his name was because everyone would get bugged if I told you his name. They'd say, Shepherd's being obscene, but do you know that, that his name was... <laughs> anyway, nevertheless, he invented this thing, see, and uh, he's, you know, he's really big now. And uh, it, it, everywhere you go, you find his invention, and people bless it and, and pay, you know, homage to it. And uh, there's hardly a person who doesn't somehow, in some way, come into contact with it occasionally, you know. And uh, he is uh, largely on... Yet his name is famous, let's face it. Uh, his name is famous. You probably said it to yourself today sometime during the day. But nevertheless, his name is famous. Now, this guy... No, now, now, now you know that, that in, in a town in England, they have a giant replica of his invention made in bronze? I'm serious. And you don't see that on the postcards, unfortunately, because uh, there, there, there's a man that did something for us, really. And, uh, you know, we, if you really do something for people, really do it, uh, people are always, uh, very suspicious of it. Uh, if a comic really makes you laugh, you kind of are, you're bugged by him. See? <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm serious. If a play really does move you, you want it closed down. Uh, <laughs> and so if, if a guy comes up and invents something that really does it for people, it's so inevitable that nobody gives him any credit. And uh, yet, during his day, when he invented this thing, uh, there was a lot of talk in Parliament that he should be knighted for it. And a couple of soreheads said no. And unfortunately, I think he should have not only been knighted, he at least gotten the order of the bat. I mean, uh, at the very least, <laughs> which would have been very fitting, you know. But, uh, you know, I've often uh, worried about things. Like, that reminds me, by the way, we got a new commercial here. Would you hit the ding-dong there, Big Fred? Hit it. Hello? Hello. 
Is this Ford dealer? That's right, sir. This is Aristophanes. You heard of me from Aristophanes? The is he trying to buy a Ford? Is it true that you Ford dealers are overstocked by 25,000 new Fords right now? That's correct, sir. $90 million worth of new Ford cars? Right. What is this, a Russian Greek? Right. We're dealing Mustangs and Galaxies and Mavericks and Torinos. Every car in the line. And you say you got 25,000 of them? Uh-huh. And with our new computer finder service, you can get practically any model and color you want from any local Ford dealer. You're not trying to fool around with Greek billionaire, are He's you? A Greek Absolutely billionaire. not, sir. Okay. I'll take them. You'll take them? Yes. All of them. All 25,000 Fords? Oh, you must be kidding. Look, just get them ready. What do you want with 25,000 new cars? I want to save those millions in discounts. Those millions? Sure, save a million here, a million there. Next things you know, you're rich, kid. While they last, see your local Ford dealer and save. Hey, that still sounds like a Russian Greek to me. <laughs> doesn't sound Russian or Greek to me, does he? Okay. But, uh, you know, that would be a great... Uh, moment. You know, I actually do know a guy that had that had what you just hear on a commercial actually had happened to him. He thought he was being taken. I'm serious. Uh, a friend of mine was a, a uh, and is, a foreign car dealer outside of Philadelphia. And uh, he, he had a car. I believe it was a Jaguar sitting on the floor there. And a guy walks in, and I'm going to tell you a story of a, a terrible thing happened to a friend of mine. And he was a car dealer, see? A guy walks in wearing a T-shirt, and uh, this was out, outside of Philadelphia, and it's a little foreign car place, the kind that you see always associated with an S.O. pump, and, you know, and on the front, this is foreign car sales and service, you know, the, the terrible kind. So uh, a guy walks in off the street wearing a pair of blue jeans or something and a sweatshirt, and he walks up to the Jaguar. And he's looking at it. Actually, it wasn't a Jaguar. I'll tell you what it really was. The car was it was an Italian car of fantastic expense. And uh, he walks up to this car, and it was not a Ferrari, no. Uh, no, it was an Alpha, as a matter of fact, but it was an, it was an Alpha of uh, exotic dimensions. And he walks in, and he takes a look at the Alpha. He's walking around. And, of course, my friend says, Oh, don't tell me I'm going to have another one of these long, involved discussions with some guy who couldn't afford to buy himself a pair of spark plugs for a, you know, 53 Ford. So... He, he goes up to the guy. No, 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 it wasn't worse than that. If the guy had said, here, I'll buy it and give him the dough, that would be no story. That has happened many times. What happened was really tragic, actually. So the guy walks up to the fellow that's standing there kicking a the tire, and he says, excuse me, but uh, would you please lay off kicking a tire? And the guy says, oh, oh yes, of course. Uh, what the, what the, What is the name of this car? And the guy says... It's an Alfa Romeo, friend. You know, if you got to ask, forget it. You're not going to buy, you know, that's kind of thing. So he walks around the car a little bit more, and he says, Would you mind if I, uh, could I, could I, uh, you know, sit in? Uh, I'd like to see how it runs. Uh, with, uh, how much is it, by the way? And so the guy says, This will kill him, you know. I'll, I'll, I'll get rid of him right here. He says, this, this one here runs 9,800, the way she sits. Oh, well, uh, I mean, do you mind if I sit in it? He says, excuse me, no, we don't like people sitting in the cars because, you know, you'll scratch up the upholstery and all that stuff. And so the guy says, oh, well, well, yeah, I can understand that. Well, uh, could you get me 12 of these? <laughs> Look, fella, I don't have any time. I'm, I'm, I got that Hillman back there that I'm greasing. Forget it, Jack. 
come on. Get off my back, Charlie. Because, no, I'd like... Uh, could you get 12? How long would it take you to get 12? Because either you get out of this place right now, or I'm going to kick your behind right out there on a Lancaster Pike so quick you don't know what hit you. Oh. Well, okay. Out he goes. So my friend goes back to the grease rack, huh? He's going... You know, he's squirting the grease into the bottom of a hillman, you know. It's good. It's a good dollar and a quarter job, see? So he's back there sweating away, and, and uh, his his partners are trying to grind the valves on a on an Austin A90, an abortion of fantastic uh, dimensions. And uh, this is their business, you know. They're eking out their poor little sad business. And about uh, 20 minutes, maybe a half an hour go by, and the phone rings. Ah, you know, and he's, oh, that damn phone. All right, all right. And the phone rings. He finally goes up to the front. And he takes it. What do you want? It turns out that it's a dealer across town, one of his buddies. The guy says, you'll never guess what happened, Max. He says, what? He says, the guy walked in, buys 12 Elvis from me. Not only that, he pays me with a check. 12 Elvis. Holy God. Was he wearing a T-shirt and a pair of blue jeans? Yeah, that's the guy. He walks right in. You know who he is? He names the name of a guy who was one of the most famous, wealthy owners of one of the biggest racing stables in America and one of the oldest wealthy families in the entire world. And it turns out that he had bought 12 alphas to give to the girls who were the bridesmaids of his daughter's wedding... <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, I'd like to tell you that my friend committed suicide or something. He walks back to the grease rack, see? Stood there for a long time. He thought. And he thought. It was at that point that he realized that some are born to win... Others are born to kick it away every time. And guess what camp he was in? Two months later, he went out of business, and he's now working for a shell station in the same area. <laughs> All he does now is dump into gas and give away the free plastic uh, salad bowls. It's about the extent of it. And he asks people if they want the green stamps and if they don't want the green stamps. And occasionally he he dusts off a windshield. One of the worst things that happened to him was one day when one of the bridesmaids drove an alpha into the shell station. And he dusted the windshield off. And, uh, you know, these little moments. <laughs> so when you hear that commercial of the guy ordering 25,000 Fords, that could happen, friends. Uh, do you have another little bit before us? And here's another newie. Four, three, Where do you hear this one? Two, one, zero. zero. <laughs> He-Man shops. Break the size barrier. Oh, E-Man shops. Yes, good news for the extra tall or the extra large. New Jersey man, if you're 17 feet tall and weigh 742 pounds, you're going to want to know about this. He-Man announces a new shop in Paramus, but all He-Man shops are celebrating the fantastic event. Now the hard-to-fit man can stop wishing and stop and start wearing 3G clothes, all the current styles and fabrics, plus superb 3G tailoring in your size. And you know what size that is, friend, if you'll admit it. Yes, you select the 3D, the 3G suit, the 3G style. He-Man has your size. 
Shoes, sportswear, sweaters, shirts, haberdashery. They got giant 30-foot-long ties, everything. You name it, He-Man has it. But only if you're extra tall or extra large. Every He-Man shop is celebrating the opening of the new Paramus store on Route 4 at Garden State Plaza. You'll find a He-Man shop in downtown Brooklyn, Huntington, Long Island, and in New Jersey at Milburn Mall as well as Paramus. You are not in a He-Man shop unless that guy comes right out and says, You're in a He-Man shop. <laughs> By the way, have you wondered where that little three-foot, that little three-inch guy that's in the blue, uh, you know, the commercials where the lady comes out and says, Blue cheer. You know, she comes out and, oh, she's blue water. You know that little guy? This guy's rolling around in that rubber rowboat. Have you wondered where he gets those little three-inch suits? It's <laughs> hard to fit, you know. <laughs> this is W.O.R. New York. I'll make the break before you even say it. And uh, you know why? Uh, I'm, I might as well uh, get these commercials out of the way quick now because we've got several others. We've got old Frank here, uh, Frank's place. It says, read with an elegant English accent. Now, I can't really do that. And, uh, you know, this is, they're getting unbearable in their requests for the people. That do. It says, read an elegant English accent. Well, this Sunday, along about noon, the second best place for you to be, of course, is Frank's Place. That's the elegant new restaurant, fellas. It's elegant at 41 East 58th Street, right in the heart of the fun district. Sunday brunch at Frank's Place makes, well, it makes getting out of bed almost bearable. First, they pry open your baby blue eyes with a sumptuous selection of juices, fruits, soups, and cereals, fellas. You wouldn't believe it. Then, try Frank's, oh, this is just wonderful, golden omelet with caviar and sour cream. I can't keep that up. Chicken livers and uh, mushrooms sautéed in butter and rice pilaf. And after an hour and a half at Frank's place, they'll call you old fatty. It's yours at Frank's place along with mini breads. Maxi drinks and unusual jellies. And it sounds like a groove, you know. They'll give you enough hot coffee to float you right happily on into Monday. And then they hope you'll come back for lunch and dinner and late supper. So rise and shine, fellows, for Sunday brunch at 41 East 58th Street off Madison. Frank's Place. It's the place to be. For reservations, call 838-0364. And if Frank answers, you better hang up quick. Let's see. <laughs> All right, that's enough. I know it's Miller. I know, honey. I see it. I see it. I'm, I'm right on top of it. You know, speaking of being on top of it, I, uh, I saw something today, a couple of days ago, actually. It brought back such terrible twangs of uh, unhappiness. Not unhappiness, really. A nostalgic buggedness. Have you ever been? Have you ever done something that really was such a fiasco that you never, you never can quite get it out of your head? You know. <laughs> Like you, like my friend that opened up his business and was selling the Alfa Romeos. He'll never forget it. He'll never forget it. You know, when he's ninety-seven years old, when he sees a Ferrari, a Farini go by, there's a little twinge way down. Who's the klutz that sold that? The guy that made it. Where was I doing? I was in the back room there greasing Hillman minxes. As a matter of fact, you realize, of course, that had he sold these twelve Alphas to this guy. The guy would have sent all his friends in. There's this wonderful little man that sells these cars down there. <laughs> and the next thing you know, he's the in automobile place. That's what happens, you know. There's a, there's in dealers and out dealers. Some of the same thing. Did you know that? And he'd been the in dealer, you know. Jackie calls from the Cape. That kind of stuff. 
I was talking to Whitney, and he certainly said that you delivered a lovely, lovely little alpha. Could you get me a baby blue one, Disco Volante, please? I want the one with the uh, pink upholstery, yes. I saw it in Cannes last year. Oh, of course, Jackie, I'll be right down there. Well, of course, this all, this happened. You, you, and you, you booted away. Yeah, you, you never know when you're going to be in. I knew a guy that ran the rottenest, vermin-infested bar on 3rd Avenue you ever saw in your life. I mean, a rotten, stinking, crummy bar. It was knee-deep in dirt and crud and dead rats, the whole bit. Yeah, used to make hamburgers out of old toads and stuff down there. Yeah, one of those places, you know. And the bums would come staggering in out of the darkness there, you know, and he'd sell them this, you know, this 30-cent-a-gallon rot cut. Uh, he called it bar whiskey, but actually it was made out of Ajax and that kind of stuff, you know. And these bums had come staggering in there. Well, one day some guy from an ad agency came in with his friend, you know, Chucky and Dickie. And he says, isn't this a marvelous place? This is really authentic, Dickie. And Dickie says, oh, my God, this is wonderful. Don't touch a thing. Well, uh, they came in there and they ate the hamburgers. And the next thing you know, this guy is inundated with chic ad types. He is now a trillionaire. He owns an island off the coast of Mambo Bongo. And, uh, you know, he calls it BL's place or LD's joint, that kind of thing. And the bums don't know what happened to him. You know, the bums were all thrown out. The place is exactly the way it was. <laughs> so they're still eating hamburgers made out of toads, but now it's, you know, it's fun. It's just so much. He serves the finest beer, you know. He, uh, he really takes care of his pipes. Well, of course, you ought to see what the pipes of the beer comes out of. Well, we don't go on with that. But uh, nevertheless, who knows when lightning is going to strike? You're liable to be chic tomorrow, friend. You don't know. You're liable to be walking down the street tomorrow looking just like you look, you know, like a, some, you know, like kind of a... Uh, you know, like a, like an old fire plug, you're walking down the street, and somebody says, my God, isn't he wonderful? He's just right. And the next thing you know, Daryl Zanuck calls, and my God, you're liable to go all the way. Just like lightning can hit, but it can hit the other way, you see. <laughs> I knew a guy that owned the chic place, too, that was really making it. It was chic, see. And uh, he had them coming in there by the droves. They were coming in, you know, under the windows, over the doors. They were climbing in at night and all that. All of a sudden, without warning, somebody said, Hey, have you tried that place down the street? Big L's, Marshmallow Ding Dong. And the next thing you know, they all run out there in the next place now. My friend now is taking in a line of tropical fish. He's going to sell birds. He may, you know, he's, <laughs> he's got a barrel of bird seed, you know, and he's going to think pet shop out in front now. But that's what happens. See, lightning can strike in many ways, sometimes good, sometimes bad. You never know. Well, I'm walking along. You know, speaking of uh, lightning, uh, have you ever been to that toy store on uh, Fifth Avenue and 32nd Street? You ever been there? Haven't you ever been there? Oh, friend. Oh, man, listen. And this is no commercial, Dad. I, I'm not, uh, I have no connection with these guys, but I want to tell you, one of the great places in New York, uh, if you're just walking around, is right down 32nd Street on Fifth Avenue. It's five floors. And if you are a hobby cuckoo, man, you'll go out of your bird. They got full... I mean, I, I, the first time I discovered it, I was out of work. <laughs> you know, when you're out of work, you look for places where you can spend an hour without having your conscience kill you, you know? And I'm walking around down there, and I see this place, and I walk in. I mean, the, what, what got me, he had a, a window full of the most fantastic model airplanes I had seen, you know? I'm a real model airplane cuckoo, see? So you hear these fantastic model airplanes in there. And I go into this place, and I'm, uh, you know, 
it's it's like uh, paradise. You see, you go up there's five floors, an elevator. If you imagine, you can go up an elevator, and each floor has got wilder stuff than the next one, like a whole floor full of fantastic ship models. You know, a whole floor of fantastic model airplane models. And then there's the car floor, and they've got them all there. You know, and uh, model trains, the whole bit, see everything. Well. Uh, and it's no commercial, so don't, don't, uh, I have no connection with them. I've never even talked to them there, except I go and marvel, see. So, I, uh, I went in there one time, seeing I'm, I'm, uh, up in a model air, this is the one that always gets me, is the model airplane department, you know, as a flyer, you know, you get hung on these planes and stuff, so I go up to the model airplane department, I'm standing around, and all these guys are buying these things, and, and I, and I always envy guys that have got the time, you know, they can build this stuff, and, they have nothing but time, apparently, in their lives. And they get a, they get some kind of a kit, you know. It's going to take them 12 years just to finish the motor mounts in this thing. Solid bronze or something. So they're building these things, and I'm walking around and looking at this great stuff. And little do they realize that they're, they're in the presence of a man who once knew real tragedy in the model airplane field. Real tragedy. I'll never forget. I had, well, actually, two incidents that happened to me in the model airplane field that uh, I just don't want to remember. Do you want to hear the stories? I mean, seriously, I might as well tell them to you. You know, it's, it's bad news, but uh, it, you gotta get you gotta get your sorrows out of you once in a while. You know, my friend that sold the or didn't sell the Alphas once in a while when he's in his cups, he tells people about the time, and they don't believe him, of course, but he gets it out of himself. He has to get it out once in a while. Can you imagine this poor astronaut, the one that didn't make it because of the measles? All right. And he didn't even get them, you know. Forty-five years from now, he's going to be telling his grandchildren. They're going to say, you know, that old geezer's getting senile. Well, he was he was on his way to the moon, and, and he caught the measles. <laughs> Poor old duck. Nobody will believe him. Because he'll be lost in history, you know. And, uh, in fact, he won't even be in history. And that's the sad thing, to miss the boat. You know, can you imagine? Can you imagine some sailor, you know? He's hanging around down there in uh, in Genoa. And he's down in, a, in this joint there, and they're fixing his—they're uh, fixing his buskin or something. And the boat is going to leave in 12 minutes. And he says, "Come on, let's get that thing going. They're—they're—they're they're, they're waiting. Chris is waiting. They're all ready." And he rushes down to the dock, and he sees a half mile out there, just going over the horizon, the Pinta, the Maria. <laughs> oh no, no. He missed it. Well, of course, these things, you know, you never know when you're missing something great, but you also know when something bad happens to you. And I did have this happen to me. I'm, a couple of days ago in the spring, always in the springtime, anybody who's a model airplane cuckoo, the bug gets them worse in the spring. Do you agree with that? It's the spring. I mean, it's the kite you fly and the whole thing. I don't know what it is. And so I'm driving along, and I see out in the field, I see about three guys, and they've got this this uh, scale model of a Curtis Robin. Now, you know the Curtis Robin's it's a, it's a high-wing monoplane of roughly the late 20s, early 30s. Beautiful, beautiful uh, classic type of airplane. And in fact, there are some of them still around. I think there's around 12 in the country that are still in mint condition, restored, that are flying. But uh, anyway, these guys had this beautiful scale model of a Curtis Robin. And uh, I could tell right away it was a Curtis Robin. You could tell by the the profile of it and everything. So they were out there putting fuel into this thing, and I slowed up and I watched them. But I didn't have time to sit and watch them fly it. But there they were. They had the fuel. They had batteries and everything all ready to go. 
and it was radio-controlled, this baby. And I looked, and I drove on. And then I, you know, I couldn't help but remember, because, you know, when you're a model airplane cuckoo, you really are, see. I remember one terrible thing that happened to me one time with a model airplane, me and Schwartz. In fact, we had two things happen. We used to build them in pairs, the two of us working on it together. He was also a cuckoo. And so we worked like six months one time to buy a model airplane model of a specific type called the Flying Quaker. Has anyone ever heard of the Flying Quaker out there? Well, it was a classic model airplane uh, of the gasoline-driven type. It was not the rubber band type. It was strictly gas, strictly uh, motor-driven type. And we, we, uh, we, you know, this was our first actual big investment in gas models. And that's a big step. When you make that step from rubber bands into the gas world, that is, uh, you know, <laughs> that's a big step. And you don't really go back once you do it. And so we were making the big step. We had won uh, all kinds of little ding-dongs. You know, I won, a, I won an award one time at the uh, hobby show of the uh, Scout Council put on. I built a, a scale model. I worked all year with a scale model of a Stinson SR7. Uh, this was a, a high-wing, gull-wing plane, incidentally, if you know what the Stinson SR7 is. And I built this thing absolute. I just with fanatical attention to detail. I, in fact, I even carved a, an instrument panel out uh, of uh, a one-eighth inch balsa. I had gotten the the uh, blow-up photographs of an actual uh, instrument panel of, an, of a Stinson SR7, and I carved it out myself. It wasn't plastic. I carved it out, and I, I, I put little uh, pieces of uh, of plastic in there for the glass, and everything. it was a beautiful little model. Say so. And I worked about a year on this thing, and I won an award for it in uh, the Scout Council. And uh, yeah, it was an award. It was, it was a top model, and they gave me a little pewter cup, and it said Stinson SR7 model winner of first award. So I was really, you know, I was on top of the world till my aunt Glenn sat on it, sat on it, sat on it. You know, women say, "Oh, I've I've broken your toy." broken my toy. I, I, you know, even now I get mad when I think about it, but the way, way she looked at me and my mother said, oh, well, you know, he just puts his toys everywhere. Toy! Broken my toy. Well, it was the humiliation one. It was busted, naturally, you know. Weighed, actually, she weighed 300 pounds, you know. She sat on that thing on, I mean, a full sit. It went like that, you know. I could... That was the end of the ball game right there. Well, not only did she sit on it, she called it a toy. You know? What are you going to do with that? So these little humiliations, these tiny cuts and scars, if you think that the, that the generation gap is new, kid, forget it. Believe me, the generation gap between me and my mother and Aunt Glenn, I would say roughly extends from here to Venus and back. And so, uh, you know, so, all right, that was enough, you know. But now Schwartz and Flick and myself, we have decided that we're going to make the big plunge. It is springtime. We've had our paper routes all year. You know, we each had about six or seven bucks in the sock. And we're going to go into this this gasoline model bit. So we're all, all winter. We are looking through all the model, all the kits, catalogs. Every catalog, we're going down. We have this big model airplane store in town, and we're down there looking at them all the time. We're deciding which one we want. 
And we finally decided on one that had won all kinds of international awards for endurance and stuff called the Flying Quaker, five feet, three-inch wingspan. It's a big airplane. And a lot of airplanes, a high-wing monoplane, beautiful, straightforward design, very similar to the to the uh, Curtis Robin, but a, but a much more of a... In fact, it had a slightly heavier fuselage, a deeper fuselage. It looked more like a, let's put it this way, a large J-3 <laughs> was what it was uh, very close to. Maybe a Super Cub. And so we started to build this, and we bought the kit first off. It came in a great big flat box, you know, and you buy these great big flat kits. Kit costs us around 15 bucks, which is a fantastic amount of money to spend for a, for a kit. And it had everything in it, see? Everything except the motor. So we were going to build the, we were going to build the plane first, and then we were going to build the, get the motor afterwards. And so we started to work on this plane down in Schwartz's basement. He had a, he had an old kitchen table down there, uh, that we had this thing spread out on for, for months, building this thing with absolute meticulous attention to every detail. Absolutely every rib we put in there. It took us like 20 minutes to get each rib in. So we're down there working away there on our kit, and we had bottles of cement and glue, and, and uh, Schwartz would take the thing. When we would finish working on it for every day, he would take it, we'd lift the whole table up, and we would move it back into the coal bin that had a lock on it. They had just converted to oil, see? So the coal bin had nothing but ball jars and stuff in it. So we'd move it back into the coal bin, and we'd put the lock on it. Nobody's going to touch this thing. Well, slowly it began to grow and began to get that, that sense of flight about it. We had these, all the wings now done. And each wing, of course, since it's five feet, two inches, or four inches in wingspan, each wing was like uh, almost three feet long, each wing. And a big, beautiful wing, everything sanded, every triple glued, just magnificent. Now we've got the fuselage completed. And it was as straight as a die. You know, you t- it, we, we, we'd weighed each lounger on to make sure that they were all perfectly balanced. We put them, we bending them, make sure that they all had the same uh, coefficient of bend and so forth. And now we have the fuselage done. And we began to, to cover it. Now, covering is a very, very tricky job. And we had gotten this, this uh, beautiful, incidentally, it was covered, in case you're curious, not in paper. We, we were going to do this right, and we were covering it with very thin Japanese silk. You can get the model silk that you use actual dope on. Have you ever seen this stuff? Very thin. It's thinner than paper, actually. Tough. Always a tough to work with. And so we were covering this thing. It took us weeks to get this thing covered the way we wanted. We'd take it off, and we'd cover it again. And we finally got it done. It was beautiful. It was white. The fuselage was white. The wings were orange, and the rudder was orange, and the stabilizer was orange and white, with a sunburst orange and white on the back. Well, then we we, we began to assemble it. That took another week or so to get the wings all perfectly aligned. Everything was just right. What an airplane. Then came the day. Of course, in the meantime, we've been saving like mad to get, a, to get the motor for this thing. And so... We went down to the store, the model store. We'd been looking at all the various engines, motors, the gas motors, gas engines. And we finally decided on one that we'd seen advertised, always mentioned in connection with all the top model contests and stuff. And so we went down to this place, 
and uh, the guy who knew us down at Lenny down at the place, he was the, he was the fixer. See, he was the fix. <laughs> yeah, Lenny had all his stuff down there. And uh, we went down to see Lenny, and uh, we, we told him what we wanted. See, we'd been talking for months about the engine. He says, yep, got it right here, fellas. He reaches back, and he takes out this box, this beautiful box, and there mounted in the box was our brand spanking new magnificent gas engine for our flying Quaker that turned aluminum you know how those look they shine beautiful so we plunks out our hard earned dough it is now late in March early in April it's getting beautiful out and so we we plunked down the hard earned dough and we all three of us were in on it. Schwartz and I actually did most of the building. Flick, he just wanted to be in on it, that's all. And so we plunked down the dough, and we walked out of that place carrying this motor. We had the batteries. We had the we had the uh, fueling kit, the little tiny, uh, uh, the little, uh, well, it's uh, actually it's a little eyedropper type thing that you, you fuel these things with. And we had two or three cans of the special fuel, and we took this thing home, and we put it, in Schwartz's vice down in the basement, he had a workbench. So we set this thing all up. We read the instructions on how to how to test run it, and so we put a couple of drops of the fuel in there, you know. And she kicks it over a couple of pop down in the basement. Schwartz's house is a real quiet type house. How many minutes? Huh? Schwartz's house is a real quiet type house. And excited. We wouldn't, wouldn't start, see? So we get so you know, take the batteries out, we rewire the whole thing. What's the matter with the battery? Schwartz says, well, let's take the, the little plug in, the little glow plug. So we take the plug out, we look at it, everything's okay. We screw it back in. We put the top back on top of the plug. You know, it had a little brass uh, binding post on it. son of a gun it roared out i'll tell you, you never heard a sound like it. it was a fantastic sound it just blew smoke all over the place you know and schwartz and i are running around of course his mother starts banging on it stop that noise daddy stop it stop it and it's roaring like hell down there blue smoke in you know that smell of that kind of that uh that fuel they have were we excited that thing really worked that little wooden prop had a beautiful carved wooden prop it really was great well all that week we were working on mounting this thing, getting it just right. We had it hanging, make sure that all the all the uh, the center of gravity was correct, and we kept moving the, the tiny bit forward, a little bit back, and so forth. And then the day came. Our beautiful flying Quaker, beautiful airplane, shiny with dope, and we had we had taken these big letters, the big registration letters, and put it on the side, NC1273-DOG, in case you're curious. NC1273-DELTA was the, uh, I, I still remember the the uh, <laughs> the registration that came in the kit, and it had a big picture on the side of the airplane of a Quaker. You know how the Quakers look on the Quaker Roads can? And this Quaker was a wild-looking Quaker. He had this big tricorn hat, and it was color. It was a decal. And he had these wild wings, and he was flying. He was a flying Quaker. 
the idea. Quaker being, it was an honest airplane. And it really was. So we took this baby out on this, this beautiful late April day with the sun shining down. And we went down to the ballpark, which was a big, big, big ballpark. And Schwartz drops a couple of drops. And before we end this story, let's do the Miller Beer commercial, which I presume is an E.T. Words and music about Miller High Life Beer. Words like tall, cold steins. In a quiet corner, refreshing, friendly. Words like another Miller for both of us. Real beer words like hearty, robust, deep down good. Cold, thirst-quenching, foamy. Words like Miller makes it right. In bottles, cans, and on draft. Words you can never forget. Like Miller High Life. The champagne of beers. The champagne of beers. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee. You know, I really shouldn't tell you this story, but I'm going to have to do it. The sun was shining down. We're at the ballpark. Some guys were knocking out flies down at the other end. And, of course, the minute they saw this airplane, they all came drifting down, saying, now we got a crowd of kids around us. We had this little can of fuel. And I filled the fuel dropper. It was probably my fault what happened. And I dropped some drops of fuel into the tank. Schwartz was handling the batteries. Flick was flicking over the prop. And I dropped the fuel in, and I'm holding the bottom of the fuselage, this magnificent plane with the wings catching the sun. Flick kicked it over. Wow, 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 wow. feel it tugging. I held it high in the air, and then I gave it a shove with the nose down so she picks up a little airspeed, and it circled the field at 400 feet, maybe 500 feet. It took off like a fantastic bird. And off it went, climbing all the way. We never saw it again. It just left this mortal sphere. NC-1273 Delta took off in a southwesterly direction and was last seen proceeding on Victor 8 on its way, quite possibly, to the Bahamas. We never saw it again. We tried to chase it for about a block or two on our bikes. Flick's old man drove about a half a mile under it with his pickup truck, but then we lost sight of it. I'll never forget it. Somewhere, someplace, that plane came in for a beautiful three-point landing. But 
we weren't there to see it. And somebody else's Aunt Glenn probably sat down on a toy. Who knows? Ah, you win some, you lose some. You never know when lightning is going to strike.